This was just innocent people who had a huge life ahead of them lost their lives to this evil, callous person who didn't ultimately care who these bombs killed as long as it bought him some time. Um, and that's, it's, it's heart-wrenching, it's awful and expectedly so. But one thing that happened, there's a lot of stories of, of redemption that occurred just quietly. And, and, and one of them, Mark Hoffman goes to prison. His wife, Dory, is left alone to raise her children. As her children go older, her oldest son wanted to serve an LDS mission. Dory was often destitute and didn't have the financial means to be able to support her family at times. And quietly, Matt Christensen stepped in and said, hey, I will provide you with whatever your son needs to go on a mission. He's the father of Steve Christensen, who was murdered by Mark Hoffman. And here he is stepping in to help Hoffman's son go on a mission. Welcome to the Cultural Hall. We've been saving a seat for you for 10 years, and we are so excited that you found us today. Now, if you're an old regular, welcome back. We're going to scooch towards the middle, so there's plenty of room for you to sit. But if you are brand new, before you even get into this episode, I would encourage you to find the Cultural Hall on whatever social media outlet you use and follow us. We're at the Cultural Hall. Now, you're obviously listening to this on some sort of listening device, so... I recommend to you that you subscribe. That way you don't miss a single moment of what we do. So what do we do? Every week we do a news episode where we talk about the latest and greatest among the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we do an interview. And we are so privileged to be able to have this interview with Tyler Meesom and Jared Hess, the co-directors of Murder Among the Mormons. It premiered on Netflix on March 3rd, and we got to visit with them that very day. It's behind the scenes, and it's spoiler-full. If you love the series and you just want to hear some more people talking about it, this episode is for you. Can I make one? One request, if you love it at the end, share it on your social media so that other people can know about the cultural hall. And now let's get to this episode. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. I'm so excited for this because, well, we're talking about murder among the Mormons. And you have to say it like that with a whole lot of emphasis in your voice. Uh, I'm joined by the co-directors. Is that how I should refer to you? Tyler Meesom and Jared Hess? Absolutely. All right. Well, co-directors... I'm excited to be able to talk about this. I I want to give the warning to everyone. Spoiler alert. Although I feel like when you talk about things that have happened, you shouldn't have to give a spoiler. Like, people should just know their history. But we are going to talk about Mark Hoffman and all about the bombings and about today and and, and the, the Netflix series and everything. So, welcome. Thanks, you guys, for being here. Thanks. Yeah, I think it is important. I think people will appreciate this podcast more and will appreciate the series more if they watch it first. So pause. Yeah. Go watch it. <laughs> binge it. We'll wait. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll actually, I only have a short amount of time with these guys and we'll actually use this time to just wait for you to go uh, binge that series. Uh, how, how did this come about? Was it Jared? You went to Tyler. Tyler, you went to Jared. I start, We started this in 2017, and uh, Mr. Doug Fabrizio of, of Radio West gave me a book and said, you should make a documentary about this, and it was a big topic, and I was totally excited about the thought of doing it, and then I said, why not? So I kind of started developing it, talking to some of the individuals, and then I heard from a third party, Duff Rich, who's a friend of both Jared and I, and Jared and I have known each other for you know decades, um, he said, Jared is fascinated with this story. So 
we met, we had sushi, and by the time the edamame came, we said, let's do this. <laughs> and that was four years later, and here we are on your podcast talking about it. Now, I'm assuming, and maybe wrongfully so, that that book was uh, the book that was penned by Richard Turley, who's in the series, or was it a different book about Mark Hoffman? You know, there's a number of books out there uh, that, that, uh, that are written. I, re I read a lot of them. Um, you know, and they all inspired me. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So not one in particular, Jared, this is a, a far cry and I know people will always bring this up, but it comes with the territory with you. This is a far cry from Napoleon Dynamite. It is. It is. Um, weirdly enough though, it kind of takes place in the same intermountain region. So there's a level of, uh, quirkiness and, and cultural specificity <laughs> in both of these stories. But yeah, for me, I mean, I think um, it's just something I've been passionate about for a long time. I'm, I'm a big Mormon history buff. I love documentaries. Um, I love true crime. Um, and, and, you know, I find myself watching more nonfiction films than I do fictional narratives. So this is, is something, you know, that I've wanted to bring to life on film in some capacity for a long time. I mean, there's really no true crime saga out there that's like this uh, you know just the aspects of religion deception forgery murder it really has everything now where uh, a lot of people will know jared that you are a member of, of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints certainly it, it kind of coincides or goes hand in hand tyler i'm not sure about that status or ever membership with you yeah i uh, i was raised in the faith i went on the mission the whole thing and uh, i left a number of years ago so, so i'm no longer in the faith so i would be curious while you were in that faith both you tyler younger and then jared uh when did you first learn about mark hoffman about the white salamander letter and about the things that are depicted in the film yeah i mean we were both very young when it happened in the mid-1980s and, and so for me i didn't really become aware of the whole story until i was in my early 20s um you know when i served a mission one of my mission companions had read a book about it and, and and knew quite a bit and i was just fascinated with the whole saga so so later as i've just become obsessed with with history um become close friends with kurt bench who's in the film he used to run the rare and used collection for desert book bought a number of things from Mark Hoffman in that capacity and now owns his own bookstore called Benchmark Books. And over the years, I've gone to lunch with Kurt quite a bit and the stories he would tell about his experience with Mark just blew my mind. Um, and, and, and so it's been, I guess, you know, over a decade in the making of, of, of at least my interest in, in research on it. What about for you, Tyler? Where did you first hear about it? You know, I, w I was raised in Utah, and I remember just a little bit uh, of it happening in 1985. But I was, you know, I was a teenager, uh, so I didn't really know what was happening or following follow it. Uh, I was 14 years old. I was raised in Pleasant Grove, and I do remember. And this is odd because it happened in December of 1985 or October of 1985. And the reason I don't know it is it was a really great World Series that year, and I was a, I was a huge baseball fan, still am. And I remember only caring about that great World Series, uh, the Cardinals and the Royals. So I kind of skipped over it until I uh, until I uh, I was older and uh, started researching it, and then going, oh my goodness, I can't believe that I lived here during that period and really didn't know anything or as much about it as I should have. 
I remember for me, it was the mid '90s, and there was a mini series I think that might w- might have been produced about it. And I remember watching it, and I was like, "Whoa, that sure is crazy! I bet that never, you know, that could never happen. What a fantastical thing that they've done!" And then I asked, and people were like, "Oh yeah, no, Mark Hoffman? Yeah, you bet. Yeah, that totally happened." It's not something that's often discussed, and I think that there will be a lot of people that come to uh, murder among the Mormons going, what or who even is this? We've sort of just jumped in because we're all fans of this story. How would you explain what uh, what murder among the Mormons or what you know the story of Mark Hoffman is? Obviously, people are going to watch the series, so we don't need to give them all the finite details, but how do you just explain it in like an elevator pitch? You know, it's tough to kind of pitch this in some ways without giving too much of the spoiler away. And Jared and I, you know, when we pitched this out, uh, when we took this out, we pitched it all over the place to every network and streamer. And the way we would pitch it basically was just saying that in the mid 80s in Salt Lake City, there were three pipe bombs over the course of two days. And these were closely related to documents. And this set forth a massive investigation to try and find out who uh, had planted these bombs and how one of the victims, Mark Hoffman, a renowned document dealer, was involved. And that was the kind of way we'd pitch it without giving away too much of the details of who did it and why he did it. Was the reaction from a lot of people, obviously it ended up on Netflix where people can get it. It's in three episodes. It's about three hours, a little shy of that. They obviously were the ones that picked it up. Were there others that were like, get out of here, Jared, you're crazy. People know you for Napoleon Dynamite. Stay in your lane, pal. I mean, luckily I was I was uh, pitching it with Tyler, who's a very accomplished documentary filmmaker. So it, it um, you know, we, you know, I think our collective vision for it, it made sense. And, and you know, this occurred in our own backyard. We're, we're, we live, both live in Salt Lake City. I mean, Hoffman's house where he produced his forgeries and constructed the bombs is just a few blocks from where I live. So it's all in our face. You know, I think that we we, we definitely have access to, to this story unlike other people do. And, um, you know, we've, we've grown very close with the subjects in the film over the years. So that, that, that wasn't too big of a, a problem, I think, as we went out and, and pitched it. I, you know, I do think just based on my comedy work, it might be a head scratcher for a few people, but again, this is something that was a very natural transition for me and that I've just been so passionate about this story and about doing something in the documentary space for a long time. Some, something that I, I really appreciate about it is that it is you can tell that there is contextual knowledge by the filmmakers, right? Someone could hear about this story and, and be be like, you know, let's do this series and be able to get into it. But you can tell that you guys know the impact that these documents had on the, on the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that it's more than just bombs and a guy who made fake documents. Like there, there's weight and gravity that you are, you're able to incorporate in it. You know, this is a this is a broad story. It's big. It's it covers not just 1985 and the times after, but it goes all the way back to 1830. And there's been a number of you know attempts to make this film, uh, television, small television pieces, you know, kind of mediocrely made murders of the week kind of pieces. And they, you know, guys come in from LA and they land and they interview someone for an hour and a half, and then they go home and try and edit something together. But this is such a complex story. And Jared and I, knowing the backstory of it, the context of it, the setting of the faith, and also the individuals 
it made it so much easier jumping into this story and being able to tell it without having that massive ramp up speed, mm-hmm. uh, massive ramp up to try and figure out what to tell and how to tell it. So we 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 knew the story. And I think the most difficult part of it was, uh, as is when you're making any documentary, it's not what goes in, on the screen. It's what hits the cutting room floor. So the difficult part of it was how in the hell are we going to tell this story, this massive story, so that it makes sense, so that it's compelling, it's not doesn't get the audience in the weeds. But, and, and, you know, fortunately, we had a really good team of editors and executive producers and everyone to kind of help us really craft this narrative into nice three uh, three episode bite sized chunks. Yeah. And, 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 and what we found too, stuff that was incredibly fascinating to me and Tyler, you know, the stuff as it relates to Mormon history, theology, you know, the foundational narratives of Mormonism were incredibly boring to outsiders. So, <laughs> so, so, so we, we literally couldn't do too much inside baseball. So, so there will be things for people that are knowledgeable about this story that are in the know that are like, oh, that was hugely important to me, but to the public at large, again, it's super boring. Rod Decker has a great quote in the film where he's like, you know, they just found documents that only nerds cared about. <laughs> um, when the co- with police were, were going, you know, uh, raiding Mark's house. So yeah, it's, it's again, we, we really had to make some bold decisions on the most relevant aspects of this story um, that had the biggest impact both to the church and the community. So so I have to share this with you guys. I have a, a good friend uh, who will remain nameless, but is in charge of some aspect of social media for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I, once I found out I was going to be able to speak with you guys on the day that this came out, you know, I've been wearing it as, as, a, as a little bragging piece saying I get a visit with these guys. Well, I get a message from him or her and says, how worried should we be? Like, how much on the offensive do we need to be as we anticipate this coming out? And I said, well, like one to ten, like maybe some people will have some questions around like the um, the acceptance of the documents. And there's discussions around, you know, shouldn't the, the, the prophets and apostles have been able to discern that these were counterfeits? So I, I said three. Do you think that that's fair? I think, look, there are no surprises. The church above anyone knows the story. And ultimately, the good guys win. A bad guy goes to jail for his horrific crimes. Um, and, and the reality is, you know, I've, for me, there's nothing that anyone should be worried about. I think initially, just the title alone, there's obviously an emotional reaction to it sure. within the community. So there's a perception, which there's always been a perception surrounding this whole saga that's very uncomfortable for members at large to confront. And so there's uh, the fear is more built into that. It's like, once you dive into the story and have context for what occurred, it's like all that goes away. Like, like you're, you're liberated in a sense and empowered to just kind of know actually what occurred instead of being in the dark and having to assume or having wrong bits of information that don't connect. So I think it, there's something about just kind of knowing the story and being able to jump into it uh, that I think is going to be very cathartic for people. And in my opinion, there's there's nothing to be afraid of or worried about. But you can imagine, uh, for those that maybe know nothing about it, that it is sort of a jarring thing, just that they didn't have knowledge of it. And, and whether or not it's their own, you know, their own, they haven't studied things out or been aware of things, you know, to know that there is this person who was selling documents that the church believed to be real, that were authenticated, and then 
there, there's all this around there. there yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, ultimately, it, it, the church was a victim, just like everyone else who had any kind of dealings with Mark Hoffman. And, you know, the, the big takeaways from this story, just as how relevant they are now, is we live in a world of misinformation and nobody is immune to deception. We're all vulnerable to it. And we all have to take a really close look at the narratives that we choose to believe. And there's, a, you know, an incredible moment in, in the second episode where you've got this guy named George Throckmorton, who um, is just like a down and dirty forensic science guy. And he says, I got into forensic science because I didn't like dealing with people. <laughs> and everyone really, I think, was, had been for years had been caught up in the emotional content of these documents, whether they validated the church or whether they completely undermined the, the origin stories of it and twisted it to this dark kind of folk magic place. George Throckmorton comes in and he's the first person that's like, have you guys considered that these might be a forgery? And he was completely detached to the emotional content of it and rationally looked at it. And it was determined by him that, gosh, these all have some flaws in them um, that, that point to forgery. And it opened the case wide up, you know, wide open and took it in a completely different direction. So, yeah, I mean, it's, there's just so many parallels, I think, to what we're experiencing with the internet, our current political climate, and just narratives out there that may or may not be true. Yeah, there, there's a particular portion, I think it's in uh, the second episode, where it, it talks about, and it's sort of this moral lesson beyond even what the film is, where it's, where it's talking about how if, if it's authenticated, then isn't it real I'm I'm butchering it. You guys, you guys are familiar. Well, Help I, me out here, Tyler. I, I, what you're saying it comes from Mark Hoffman directly. It's Mark Hoffman's words, and Mark was very, very good at creating documents. Very good at it, from the ink to the paper to the handwriting to the style to the verbiage. Uh, he just really knew how to create documents that would fool a lot of people. And he said that if a document is verified as as genuine. By the experts, then it became genuine, and so he he truly, I think, had that ability to to go. I made something real. Mark had the ability to to rewrite history. You know that the, the power that one must feel when you know that something you created in your tiny little workshop in your crappy little messy basement in Murray uh, is it Murray he was in Murray. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was more like kind of Mill Creek Canyon. Mill Creek, yeah, I guess Mill Creek area. Yeah. He, the power he had to create this kind of, you know, this document and then to send it off to New York or the FBI or Sotheby's and for them to say, yeah, this is real. And then for entire books to be rewritten for organizations and entities like the, the, the church to, to adapt their theology and rewrite some of their work because of this, the power that he must have felt must have been remarkable. And I do think he probably had that switch in his brain to go, okay, somebody said it's true. It sure as heck is. This this will sound um, bizarre, I think, to say out loud. And I'm sure that there will be haters that come from it uh, as well. But in his genius, he is incredibly respectable in his genius. Now, you know, we can look at it and, and recognize that he uses genius for horrible things. And I want to make sure that, you know, I don't I don't glamorize, you know, the the fact that people died, be, you know, at his hand and that people were deceived and all those things. But I I came away from it with this 
this disgusted respect at his genius that I did not think I was going to come away with. We, uh, as filmmakers, we kind of wanted to play that narrative a bit. You know, today's protagonist uh, is flawed. You know, it's not a squeaky clean Jimmy Stewart character. It's <laughs> a Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad, who you know is doing something terrible, but you kind of like them as well. And I think a lot of us have that kind of dark side in us regardless. That That's why we watch true crime, that need to kind of see how somebody can pull something off that you would never do. Hopefully you'd never do. Yeah. Well, maybe you, Rich. Yeah, oh, okay. You're, you're, okay. You're shady. All right. <laughs> uh, and so I think there's, a, you know, there's this tendency to kind of revere a, a craftsman and an artist like Mark, who was able to be such a magician with both his, uh, his skill and his, his element to deceive and to keep a secret for so long. And so I think Jared and I kind of wanted to play that and make the audience feel just a little bit of what you felt that, that I want to revere this person. But then at the end, you're sucker punched by this is a cold, callous, horrible, awful human being. There's another part of it, Jared, and I would be curious as to your thoughts on this. Like, he killed people, and those people are still alive, and people who were friends with Mark Hoffman are still alive and around, and several of them featured in the film. And these are people that we we get a glimpse into the tenderness of some of their feelings. Some of those individuals aren't even featured in the films, you know, Widow and, and, and some of those folks. How are you able to... Um, portray this story knowing that for for some aspects it would bring up so much emotion for these people that lived the Mark Hoffman experience. Yeah, I mean, you know, for most of our interview subjects, they have not spoken about this openly for 35 years since since it occurred. And so we were reopening some big wounds for them. Um, you know, I think Tyler and I, we spent a lot of time going to lunch with these people. We've become close friends with them. And so we really did had to earn people's trust and respect as we went into the project. Um, Cause it, we, we knew that we wouldn't get that level of vulnerability and openness um, if we hadn't built a rapport with them going into it. And they needed to know from us that, that we were gonna treat everybody with dignity. And we, and we really, really tried to do that. We wanted to give people a chance to tell their story as it happened and let the film, you know, the the series be told from that perspective. So, you know, we, you know, here you've got two incredible families in the community, Gary Sheets, his wife, Kathy Sheets, who lived in Holiday, and you have uh, Steve Christensen and, and, and his family. And, and as we know, Steve Christensen is the son of Matt Christensen, who was the president of, of the uh, uh, Tabernacle Orchestra and also owns the Mr. Mac stores uh, here in Salt Lake City. And this was just innocent people who had a huge life ahead of them, lost their lives to this evil, callous person who didn't ultimately care who these bombs killed as long as it bought him some time to kind of figure out what his next move was going to be. Um, and that's, it's, it's heart wrenching. It's awful. And expectedly. So, you know, we, you know, one, one moment, um, you know, the, the, again, there were so many stories we didn't have the real estate to cover within our limited series, but, but one thing that happened, it, there's a lot of stories of, of redemption that occurred um, uh, just quietly. And, and, and one of them, Mark Hoffman goes to prison. His wife, Dory is left alone to raise her children. As her children go older, her oldest son wanted to serve an LDS mission. Dory was often destitute and didn't have the financial means to be able to, to uh, uh, support her family at times. And quietly, Matt Christensen stepped in 
and said, hey, I will provide you with whatever your son needs to go on a mission. Wow. And just, Wait a minute here. Like he's the father of Steve Christensen, who was murdered by Mark Hoffman. And here he is stepping in to help Hoffman's son go on a mission. So it's and those things happened off the radar and, and they would never announce that. But it's you know, that's that's it's a beautiful aspect, I think, of the community. You guys are certainly doing the media tour. Uh, it's expected. And I've seen it in The Hollywood Reporter and I've seen it in Variety and all these different places. Uh, people have a fascination um, with Mormon people just in general. I think it's the questions. It's the sacred things that maybe we don't talk about so much. What do you guys find yourself being asked in uh, in those mainstream media interviews that within this, I'm probably not even going to be thinking to ask because we just sort of have that generalized understanding. I, you know, whenever you make a documentary, uh, and I've made a number, and I'll tell you the first question they always ask is, well, the first question is, what are you going to make next? Which <laughs> is kind of frustrating because we just made you yeah, something. Yeah. But regardless, they always want to know, what was your role in it? Why did you want to make this? Uh, and I think that is an important element of any kind of storytelling. You know, is it important to you? Is it something that you uh, that, that you wanted to make, that you needed to make, that you felt therapeutically you had to make, if you will? And I do think that's important. You know, th this is a four-year project for Jared and I. And when you make a documentary, man, it can get tiring and exhausting and frustrating. And so when you choose to make a film, you want to make something that Four years later, when you're tired and exhausted and you don't want to do it anymore, you know that you're doing it because you love the subject. Mm -hmm. And this was something we just love. So uh, there is a fascination with this culture. There is a fascination with this religion. Uh, in the end, this is just like, this is a great story. You know, in, in any setting, there's the forgeries would make a great story. Just one of the forgeries. If it was just the oath of a free man would make a great documentary. Uh, if it was just the murders, if it was just, uh, you know, the culture itself, all of this made such a great story that, uh, you know, any setting would, I think, gain interest uh, for a worldwide audience. What are you surprised about that people ask, Jared? Is there anything that you're like, well, I, I, we just know this, or why are you asking yeah, that? I mean yeah, I mean, you know, what? one of the great things about the story is it was very regional. It was very isolated. People within Utah and in the LDS community, they know about the story, but the world at large knows nothing about it. And as storytellers, that was huge for Tyler and I as we kind of constructed, you know, the, the, the flow of the series and where the cliffhangers were going to be and the twists and turns. And so when people go into this cold, they're kind of blown away that they didn't know about the story. And um, and and so that's been been kind of amazing that, uh, you know, everyone always says, how did I not know about this? This was like the greatest forger of all time. How did I not know about it? And so it's it's cool that we're able to introduce it into the in, into the world. It's something that as I watched, too, you guys have, have, have um, made great lengths to say the story of this. And I don't think when we think about. Um, documentaries, or maybe this just shows my ignorance. I don't think story, right? I think of story in a narrative film, right? Like once upon a time there was this, and then he this, and then, and and I, when I think of documentary, I don't think about that. But I love that you guys have focused on the story. I love that you're able to tell the story really well. And then I love how each of those individuals who you interview, the, to be able to get their sort of reminiscence and stuff like that, are, are essentially characters within. Uh, the the series and you know I found myself and I I think he's going to be a popular favorite I'm willing to call it out Shannon Flynn has got to be a crowd favorite of 
you know, the ones that get interviewed and discussed within this series. Yeah, we, we knew immediately when we started interviewing him that he was going to be meme worthy. And as of last night, the memes of Shannon Flynn started to roll in. So you are spot on there. There, there is an interesting point, though. And, you know, as he's discussing, for people that don't know Shannon Flynn, he was sort of like a, a partner with Mark Hoffman. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when he talks and some of the questions that you guys ask him, he looks nervous. And I don't know if it's just my I want to be suspicious of everyone or, you know, maybe he's not telling us something or he let Mark take the fall for stuff. But there there are times that I'm watching where I'm like, is this where Jared and Tyler get Shannon to admit to something he's never admitted to before that I just was just enthralled with him speaking? He he loves this story. He loved being a part of it. You know, that was this is his retelling of, you know, uh, him him being a football star in high school. So while he was thrust into this unbelievable story and kind of thrust in a terrible way because it did affect his life and it uh, in, in horrible ways, there is an element of it was a great period for him. You know, I mean, he was. He was James Bond. He was a sidekick. He was flying to New York. He was carrying briefcases of cash. He was shooting guns. He was wheeling and dealing. He was a small town boy hanging out in New York City with these big collectors um, and having a heck of a great time. And then all of a sudden, you know, this man who he trusted and was friends with uh, was convicted of a crime and he was convicted of a crime. And then he found out that this band that he trusted was not only just a forger, but was a murderer and a cold murderer. So there's an element, just like you said earlier, of wanting to revere him. He he loved that period of his life. But at the same time, it 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 still has a lot of emotion and pain, as you witness later in episode three of the series, when it really it tears into him what uh, what happened. Do you think that there are at all um, causes for pause for people of faith, particularly of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that with the church's reaction, the church willing to purchase these documents, anything that 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 members of the church justifiably would go, yeah, I don't know about all that. Yeah, it I seems think, like... I, I, you, you know, I, th- I think the only... Where people run into problems is if you actually think that certain human beings are infallible right and that's and 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 i think that's where you know that that's where things become problematic but if you just kind of realize that everybody's a human being nobody is immune to deception and that people under incredible amounts of stress make mistakes and not only that it's there's no shame i guess in in being deceived by the greatest forger of all time you know it's it's he duped the experts of the whole world, the document world, scholars, huge institutions, whether it was the FBI, the ATF, Sotheby's, um, you know, university historians that were specialists in this field, as well as the LDS Church. So there's there's there was incredible collateral damage where not just you know church leaders' reputations being thrown into question, but also, you know, the FBI and scholars and, and everybody. So, you know, I think to me, it's not, it was a very normal thing for the church to acquire and collect their own history. Um, that's something that they've always done. It's renowned for doing that. And, you know, I think I think some of the things that happened along the way where you've got documents, for example, the Anthon transcript completely confirmed what members of the church believed to be true about the Book of Mormon. This 
solidified the fact that there were gold plates. Here were the the inscriptions from it that that um, he transcribed. And then later, Hoffman would find something that was kind of a skeleton in the closet of LD, early LDS history. And so there were, and, and when those things would pop up, the church would be like, oh, I want to get it. Let's take it. Let's research it. Let's find context for it before it goes out into the public. But the way that that looks, obviously, to many people, the perception is, wow, they're getting this history that challenges the faith-promoting stories that we know, and they're wanting to scoop it up and lock it away and have it never see, see the light of day. So and in many instances, you know, I think that was their perception. And I don't know fully, fully the motives, but I, but I do know that this was a normal thing for them to do, to want to research it, authenticate it, have a his, historical context for, for what was there. You know, on the, on the flip side of that, and at the sake of having packages left on my door, I, I do think that the church was was duped. And, you know, this whole spirit of discernment, people always throw that about. I, I you know, I think that's over overdone. You know, if, if they were that good, they could tell you if the jazz would win tonight. Um, <laughs> right. You know, like, I, I just I don't I don't buy that. But I, I do think there's yeah, an element yeah. that they, they did try to they did try to hide some of these documents and they were untruthful afterwards when these documents were revealed. They, they said, we don't have it and we don't, you know, we, we don't know anything about it. And then they, a couple of days later, Oh yeah, we do have it. So I, I, I do think they're not completely off the hook in trying to bury right. a bit of their history mm-hmm. um, and a history that if that document was true, was, would have been damning. I mean, you know, there were, there were multiple documents that Mark found that Joseph Smith, the third blessing was incredibly damning were it to be true. And I can understand the tendency to hide that. And so I, I don't think they were as an, a, a, an open door as they are now back in the eighties. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think they, they tried to, sweep a few things under the rug and maybe we they did sweep some things under the rug that we don't know but regardless you know we see throughout the series uh richard turley who former uh, historian for the the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints he almost serves as the character of the church within the film because none of the other church leaders uh make an appearance at least not in response to this there are some pictures and and some quotes from the time of when all this was occurring uh, did you guys reach out to the church as a, as a whole? And what was the response to, to them at your request, if there was one? Yeah, you know, when we, um, at the time of the interview, Richard Turley was actually the director of public affairs for the church. Um, and so we obviously talked to him if, if, if there would be any of the leaders at the time that were involved would be available. I mean, they've got super busy schedules. And I think they just kind of let you know, Rick kind of handle it. And and obviously we were able to get access to incredible news footage of the press conferences. So even people that have passed on or didn't directly participate in our interviews, you got to hear their own words from their mouth at that time. Um, and, and so that I, I think spoke volumes of just kind of putting the audience in that moment in 1985 and let the viewer experience what was going on. Um, but but Richard Turley was immensely helpful. He obviously has written an amazing book called Victims that was about the whole Hoffman saga. And he was working at the church at the time. So he, you know, his authority on the subject was just incredible. And, and he definitely had so many insights to the story at large. So, And it yeah. is interesting uh, to see in those pictures and in those press conferences, you see former prophet of the church, President Gordon B. Hinckley. Uh, I think it's Elder Maxwell, Neil A. Maxwell, and then... 
uh, also Elder Oaks, who is uh, of the three. The it only... was actually Hugh. It wasn't Maxwell. It was Hugh Pinnock. Oh, Pinnock. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Of the three, but Elder Oaks being the only one that, that still survives. And so my mind then immediately wanders to, I wonder what he knows that he could tell. We would never be sure. able to get access for something like that. But it, yeah, it yeah, does yeah. make me curious. Yeah, no, we, I mean, you know, yeah, he, you know, I think we, we asked if he wanted to be involved via Rick and, you know, weren't able to interview him. And, but again, I think, you know, there, yeah, there's just so many interesting details and aspects. Again, we, Hoffman's stories spanned over six years, right? Um, from the time that he really landed on the scene with the Anthon transcript. And so it's, it wasn't just one or two crimes that occurred but you have six years worth of crimes and each day there's like a completely new story. So again, we really had to kind of curate what were the most significant moments in this story to really get across the, the impact that it had within the community. And, you know, there, there were so many rabbit holes that we could have gone down. Um, and like I said earlier, a lot of them ended up being incredibly boring, I think, for viewers that knew nothing about it. Tyler and I, we, we, we test screened the series clear back in August, really early cut, just so, and, and all with people that know nothing about Mormonism or Utah, just so we could get a handle on, are we providing enough information on the founding beliefs of Mormonism so you can fully comprehend how the Salamander letter disrupted that? And, and so we spent a lot of time in that first episode trying to give the audience enough information so they could understand the stakes. My next question comes with fingers crossed. That stuff that's left on the cutting room floor, will it be available anywhere? Or is it <laughs> is it being planned to be put together or like buy the we'll DVD, that. if that's even still a the thing? The DVD, yes. <laughs> we'll put it at the end of the VHS tape for, for you, Richie. I'm a beta, <laughs> I voted on Betamax. I, I picked the wrong one. Uh, okay. You know, I don't... I, 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 I wish somebody could do an entire long format piece to this. And it, the best format may actually be an audio podcast because there's so many stories. There's so many elements to this uh, that we couldn't go into. Uh, you know, even some of the documents that he created and sold, uh, more of the characters who were involved, uh, some of the things that happened after the documents that are still out there. The twists and turns uh, were so many, uh, and, and we were just able to really scratch the surface in many ways of the, the grandiosity of this story. Right. A couple of kind of random pickup questions that I have just from my viewing of it. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tyler. In the second episode, there is a Mesum, right? Is that a family relative to you? Is that the connection also for you? There is a Mesum. There is a Mesum. That is my cousin. Uh, he... He was uh, college roommates with Mark and knew him very well. And he told some amazing stories about, and, and stories that, look, so many people have been interviewed about Mark Hoffman through the books and everything. He, he never has. So having just him as my cousin and him telling me the stories one day at a family reunion blew my mind. And so he was able to give an insight that we couldn't have from other people who, you know, didn't know him. There are very few people who knew him in college. Uh, he was kind of a loner. And so he was able to tell some great stories to us. 
uh, uh, this question for Jared. Uh, we sort of we we go through the whole series and and we see what happens. And spoiler again, he goes to jail and he'll be there for the rest of his life. But at the very end of the series, you guys make the choice to share the mug shots of him, sort of over the years from where he where he went in, or I guess they're prison shots, not mug shots. I don't know whatever you would call them. But the the main series shifts from sort of this like gravity you know this deeply disturbing story and then the music and the and his mugshot headshots come up and it's like boop do 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 you know and i and i was like that's got to be intentional but i don't know if i know why you know we talk about a guy that has changed his look over the years i mean like it, any one of those photos side by side you'd be like no that's not the same guy but it's wild to almost see this golem-like evolution of this guy that did these horrible things, kind of like wilt away in in, in prison. And uh, you know, our editors found that song, which we just thought was great. It's called "Out of Time, Man," and it just seemed to juxtapose pretty well. You know, I think the experience of the story, and you kind of want to release Valve as well after going through such like an emotional journey. Um, but yeah, those those prison photos are, are pretty, pretty alarming, just as you kind of see, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely- in, in answer to your tone of that though, you know, Jared and I, it, it, true crime can be tough. Like watching all of this dour and sadness and murder, you know, Jared and I wanted to bring some levity to this entire piece, uh, which makes of course the pain more painful and the comedy more comedy. And of course, with our sensibilities and Jared's past as a comedy director, I think we brought a lot of uh, um, lightheartedness to places where it was dark. Um, and there's a number of scenes and, and it, it, it kind of have a, a, a tone that's a little more fun than your true crime typically is. Mark Hoffman, not interviewed for this, not for your guys' lack of trying, but denied the, the opportunity. I'm going to leave on this question and it'll go to each of you. Uh, so wh- whoever wants to ask first. Would you be able to ask a question of Mark Hoffman? What question would you ask him? You get one. I mean, for me, I want to know who he is now. Like he said, 35 years to reflect on the horror he caused. Who was it? Like we, you know, the the series focuses on the Mark Hoffman of 1985. Who is he now? Uh, like I... I, I I really want to know how he views his life, um, if he's changed, if there's any remorse at all for what he did, because there's clearly not when he has his parole hearing and we play those confessions and they're just, they're horrific to listen to. They're just so callous and heartless. So I, I, I want to know who he's become or who he thinks he's become since then. You know, uh, we, we weren't able to talk to Mark and I've written him dozens of letters and, you know, Mark has his own secret and he's in his jail cell in Gunnison and he, he knows what happened. As a documentarian, I mean, we've been asked this, like, what was the one question? I mean, look, I, we interviewed Shannon over the course of two days. We interviewed Brett Metcalf over two days. We the, the questions I had for these individuals, it's too difficult to put into one. But ultimately, I'd like to know, Mark was very gifted. He was very good at what he did. And when he was 14 years old, he forged the coin that fooled the treasury and sent him off into the spiraling path into crime. But I'd like to kind of call from interviewing him. Maybe he could have gone good. Mm. You know, what could he, he have done if he'd have used these, these superpowers uh, by wearing a cape instead of a, a, a bad a hood? 
you know, if you will. Like, what was that turn that made him want to continue? Was it just lies after lies after lies, lies beget lies, lies beget lies that he just had to keep getting deeper and deeper? Was it this need to deceive that gave him power? I'd like to know, like, wh- where was that turn that where he went wrong? Hmm. If we could ever figure that out. The fact of the matter is, is Mark's not a very reliable narrator. He'd tell you one thing and it He's not known for telling the truth all the time. Let's just say that. You don't say. Tyler Meesom, Jared Hess, co-directors of Murder Among the Mormons. It's on Netflix now. Stream it. You'll end up binge-watching it, and then you'll think, what did I just watch? And watch it again, and watch it again, and, uh, you know, put your creative works uh, out on the internet with those memes with Shannon Flynn. I just saw one pop across my screen as we were chatting, and they're so great. Uh, You guys have to check it out. I hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat on the back row.